This is the Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann. My guest today is Sarah Beer, chef, writer, and author of The Fruit Forager's Companion, which is available from Chelsea Green Publishing. Starting with her book and those experiences, we explore her interest in wild fruit and foods, including first falling in love with Paul, and about how shared experiences in the forest or around the table bring us together. Enjoy this conversation with Sarah, and I'll join you again afterward. And Sarah, can you tell us a bit about yourself and what you did before you came to the world of foraging and writing The Fruit Forager's Companion? I can. I always stumble when people ask me what I do because I feel like I do a thousand different things. But essentially, I'm a chef and a writer. And before I got into foraging, that's still how I identified myself. So I've always loved to be outside. And I've always loved to read and write. And when I was in college, I was very excited to just learn about writing. I was an English major. I just wanted to write. That's why I dropped out. I was disappointed with the lack of free writing opportunities in my freshman year of coursework. So I dropped out and I had all these ridiculous jobs. I worked in a bakery selling donuts and I shelved books in a library and I cleaned toilets and I did all kinds of things. And eventually I moved back in with my parents to figure out what the heck I was going to do with myself. And I grew up in a small town in Southeast Ohio and there's not a lot for a person in their early twenties to do. I got very interested in what I would call hobbyist cooking. I would make these really elaborate recipes I had a sourdough starter, and it was like the first living thing that wasn't me that I was responsible for. So I was baking sourdough bread and just very fascinated with food and how it connected us to our backgrounds and cultures. And I thought, okay, I'll be a food writer. So I went to the Culinary Institute of America with the intention of getting a job at Cooking Magazine, which I didn't do. Once I graduated, I moved to... California with the intention of becoming a wine writer. Then I became a music journalist. (laughs) Nothing I've done has ever been direct. And I always had different food jobs thrown in there. I eventually started working at libraries again. And that whole time I was also developing recipes and testing recipes as well. So I finally got to the point where I could do it on my own terms as a freelancer And I've been working from home for about the last 10 years, sometimes full-time, sometimes part-time in combination with working at a library. But just being at home, it makes me feel very trapped. I like to be outside. So I started going on these walks, wandering around the different neighborhoods where I lived. And that's how I got into noticing plants. I find that most people who come to this life or lifestyle, whether it's foraging, permaculture, or really any kind of other nature-based regenerative practice, that it tends to be circuitous because unless we have parents or family members who were really involved in the land or like the return to homesteading during the 60s and 70s, that back to the land movement, most of us wound up growing up in civilization and then coming to these kinds of things later in life. Yes, you have to go out seeking the uncivilized to to restore your balance as a human, I think. There's something to be said about that reconnection with nature whenever it comes. And before I get into more about your foraging and that 
return to wild spaces. I know some folks who have graduated from the CIA, and I was just wondering, what campus did you go to? I graduated in 1999, so I went to the campus in Hyde Park, New York, which at the time was the only one that granted degree programs. I know that they have quite a few campuses these days, all of them lovely, because I've been to the Greystone campus too, but I loved being in the Hudson Valley. It spoke to me so much, and so much of my time there, I would... When I wasn't in class and when I wasn't working on editing the student newspaper, I went on these runs up and down the valley and I would go hiking every weekend. Once again, trying to seek out the balance of that high pressure chef situation. So anyway, that's the school that I went to. And it was one of the better decisions I've ever made in my life. Cooking school isn't for everyone and there's no one cooking school for everyone, but that was the right one for me at the right time. From that experience at the Culinary Institute of America and traveling to California and working through all these paths and coming to this place now where you work from home full-time, part-time, as it happens, when did you first start to encounter this world of foraging? I was thinking about the first time I ever went foraging, technically, and I didn't even know I was doing it. The birds, my family on my dad's side, are obsessed with berry picking and... It can be picking berries out in the woods or going to a U-pick farm. There's just something about us. We will go and pick berries for hours and come back with way more than we'll be able to use. And I think the first time I ever went foraging would have been when I was a little girl. And there was this dilapidated old farmhouse where we go camping in the country in southeast Ohio. And of course, there were blackberry brambles sprawling all over the place. So we'd go out and pick the blackberries. I did not care for the blackberries. They were not sweet enough to me as a little girl. But I just remember that was a family thing. And I could see how excited my aunt and my dad would get about it. And it stuck in my head like, oh, this means something to people. But it didn't make an impression on me at the time. I was just a kid moving through life. But later on, during some of my hikes in the Hudson Valley, up in the Catskills, I remember running across black raspberries or lowbush blueberries on a hike. And there's almost nothing better than when you're hiking and ripe berries. It's, then you eat them and they're so hydrating and sweet. And you could probably eat the same berries back in your apartment a couple days later. And they just wouldn't be nearly the same, not necessarily because they aren't as fresh, but because the whole context is missing. So I think hiking berries are some of the best berries you can ever have. So I would notice berries when I was out hiking. But as far as foraging, thinking of it as I am foraging right now, probably my first experience doing it was when I lived in Portland, Oregon, and we had a little dog, we still do, and we just walked him all over the neighborhood. He's a border collie. Jack Russell Mix, and he's very active little guy. He needs lots of walks. And I felt like he was taking us for the walks. It was this thing where he was the mechanism for getting us out of the house. And I appreciate that. So we'd, I'd walk around the blocks and all these little snaking formations. And I noticed there was a house that had quince growing. They had two quince trees. And quince are not a common fruit. And I love them. So I started stalking this tree. And I'm ashamed to say I stole the quince. I did not ask the, a homeowner. It was okay. I just noticed the quince there 
on the ground rotting and then the other ones on the trees. And I would go and take a couple every day. Fortunately, quince stay very stable at room temperature for quite a long time. So I'd just add a couple quince to my bowl every day. And I think I like that I was stealing. This is a terrible thing to say, but it's true. That's <laughs> I'm not going to lie about it. I think it tapped into this deviant self inside of me that needed an outlet. So that is how I started foraging. I would call that neighborhood foraging because these are ornamental trees growing in somebody's yard. They're not out in the wild. But I really fixated on them in the in the autumn months. And through that, I started noticing fruit trees and fruiting plants all around my neighborhood. I think because I really wanted to go out more into wild spaces and my schedule wasn't permitting that. So I had to recontextualize the things around me and think of that as my wild space. What's in this wild space that's interesting to me? And as a chef, food is interesting to me. So that's how it all started in what I call my foraging practice, the way some people have a yoga practice. Like it's, I'm going to wake up in the morning and do my yoga. My foraging practice is me walking around my neighborhood, looking at stuff and trying to notice what's different that I haven't seen before and trying to notice what's going on with plants I've looked at a hundred different times. It's not necessarily me harvesting anything. It's more about looking and thinking what's going on with it. Does that wandering and looking and seeing give you a sense of connection to the seasons and then when these plants will be available for you to harvest later if you choose to? Oh my goodness, yes. That's like half of the point. It, stumbling across berries growing along the side of a trail in the Catskills is a wonderful thing. That's just this serendipitous encounter. But I really like that feeling of coveting something. When it's a plant, as opposed to a pair of shoes, <laughs> because I've coveted shoes before too, but when it's a living thing, you just develop this relationship with it. It doesn't necessarily need me to notice it, but it's alive, it changes every day, and seeing that influences how I feel about myself and my relationship to the world. So I go back home after looking at all these things and I feel more engaged with my friends and my family. It carries over to my human relationships too. I think about other people who might be looking at these different crab apple trees or sometimes people will notice what I'm doing. I should also clarify that these days if I am going to pick something or thinking about it, I just knock on somebody's door. Sometimes I'll stake out a tree and I'll notice that it isn't being harvested. And nobody has ever said, oh, yes, yeah, Sarah, don't pick those crab apples. They're happy to have somebody take the crab apples away. So that's another gateway to a human relationship. Because of all these plants and what they're doing throughout the seasons, I feel changes in myself. I'm more aware of how I'm a dynamic person and I'm more aware of the dynamic surroundings that we all share, whether it's a person with a tree that I've been <laughs> staking out or somebody who just happens to be by the same black raspberry bush that on public property that, that I'm macking down on. That happened once too. I saw some trailside berries, gravel roadside berries, and they were ready to eat and I just started eating them. 
a guy who looked shady came by, which, you know, isn't great when you're by yourself on a remote gravel road. And he said, I love black raspberries, too. So you just never know. I love the surprises of these human encounters that come along. You just don't expect. I think there's something specific to fruit of all food plants that brings out these quirks in people. Lovers of unusual fruit tend to be slightly eccentric people too, but you never know who they're going to be. So I just love that. I love all my fruit nerd people. I think of some of the trails that my son and I hike on and having taught him some of the local brambles that he'll keep an eye out for those red stems coming up out of the grass and that flush of white flowers. And then he'll start asking me, dad, are we going to go hiking here in a week or so when those berries start to come in? I'm like, son, we have about three more weeks till those flowers become berries. Just patience. We can go, we can look, but they'll be there. They'll be waiting for us. And then going and taking him when they are ripe and in season and just standing there until our fingertips turn pink and we're just running with berry juice and have had our fill and we'll go for our hike. Those are amazing times. How old is your son? He is eight. Eight. Okay. Is he still as enthused about berries now, do you think, as when he was younger? I think he's even more so now because he doesn't need dad to get them. He can watch for the thorns and things like that and reach in deeper and get to the bigger berries that people and the animals haven't gotten to. And so very often he's the one who gets me to stop and stay for a little bit longer. Oh, that's wonderful. He's going into the zone. That's what happens when you're picking berries and you just, you can't leave until you get the one more beautiful, big, perfect one. And then you get that one and then you're like, oh, I'm going to, I can't leave until I get one more and on and on. Yes. And yeah, he's, he teaches his sister about the berries and then she's the one who teaches him to go out into the yard and hunt for the violets because she prefers eating those over berries. But you mentioned that fruit seems to draw something out of people. Is that why you chose to focus on fruit for your book? Or was it from that familial history that you were drawn to these? Why choose fruit in particular for a book about foraging and food? I think it's because fruit chose me. This is my papa origin story. And this is where I would say my obsession, for lack of a better term, with this all really clicked. So pawpaws are the largest fruit native to North America. And they grow here in Southeast Ohio, where I grew up and where eventually I moved back to. So this is where I am now in Southeast Ohio. And on my parents' property, there's a pawpaw tree, but I didn't even know what it was. I didn't know that pawpaws existed. It just wasn't part of my upbringing. Also, there was no fruit on the tree because pawpaws don't always propagate. They have other ways of propagating than by seed. So it's not imperative to them that they fruit. And this is one of the trees that didn't fruit, but there it was in my yard and they have these gorgeous big leaves. I never even paid attention to it. It was just this wild tree between the woods and the yard, but it was there all along. And I never even heard about pawpaws until I moved to the West coast where they don't grow. So when we moved back to Ohio, which would have been, I don't know, about six years or ago, perhaps, I was really curious to find these pawpaws because they were like the Sasquatch. I thought, how could these things exist where I grew up? And I didn't, I didn't even know about them. So sometimes I go on these little hikes and I 
keep my eyes peeled, but I had no idea what they looked like. And one day, it would have been probably about September, I was on a trail behind my daughter's preschool, which is wonderful that there was a trail there because I could take her to preschool and sneak in a little woods walk on my own. That was Those were very special times to me just to have my alone time there in the woods. So I was having my alone time in the woods and I saw this bright yellow gold thing smashed open in the middle of the trail. It was like nothing I'd ever seen before. And I looked at it and I realized it was a fruit and I thought that has to be a pawpaw. I just had this feeling. So I came back the next day and looked around some more and I brought some back and identified them they don't look very special on the outside. They're there's a dull, light green color. But on the inside, they can be just this crazy vibrant color. They have a tropical aroma, a kind of mango banana flavor. It's like nothing you would ever think growing in the deciduous forests of eastern North America. And I just became enchanted with them. So all I had to do was go on a walk, and one of them was there. It's like it came along to me at a special time. I don't necessarily believe in fate, but I think I do believe in choosing to notice something when you should. And yeah, that's how it all started. And as far as the significance of fruit, I like the way fruit tastes. And let's face it, fruit is very sexy. It's how plants reproduce. It's oftentimes beautiful to look at. I just think there's something very sensual even without being sexy about fruit, that, that it just the way it smells, the way it feels, the way it looks as it ripens, as it goes from flower to this swelling ovary. It's all just so beautiful to watch. So the fruit chose me. That's There was no other book I could have written. As the fruit chose you, how did you choose what fruits to include in your book? Were you searching for things that you had a good personal awareness? Or did you... Start with some things that you knew and then seek out other fruits that you heard that were interesting that you wanted to include. Both. So there are some fruits that I have a lot of awareness about and that I see in my little foraging outings that I thought more people should know about or I noticed many people were curious about increasingly. So those are some of the ones that went in. And then there are other ones that don't grow in my region, but I had encountered when I lived in other places, for instance, Mahonia or Oregon grape, which is not a grape. <laughs> Probably most permaculture people would know that. It's interesting. So many fruits are named after other fruits, too. I think it's just because of that's what the reference point is, if you think about it. So when I lived in Oregon, I ran across lots of those. And then there are fruits that everyone knows about, and those are in the book. So things like lemons, apples, crab apples. I would say these are pretty prosaic, but they're something that you're going to encounter. Oftentimes people have things growing as ornamentals. And when you think of them as forageable, I should say as an aside, I don't differentiate between foraging and gleaning in this case. Gleaning is when you're gathering things that other people haven't used and foraging is gathering wild ingredients. But I feel like, what is wilderness now? We've changed what wild spaces are. And there's a gray area between the two and where the magic happens is that gray area. So 
I don't really differentiate between foraging and gleaning. And that's why in this book, you will see apples, which I suppose there could be wild apple trees. That's how they started out. But most of us are going to encounter apples because we have a neighbor who has apple trees. And if they don't want to share them with you, then they won't because you will ask first. And I also think of the many abandoned apple orchards that I've encountered or have been told about over the years. I can think of five off the top of my head within about an hour of where I live that those are the kinds of spaces where these places where human beings once were have now been abandoned and are slowly being reclaimed, but that are still valid places to go looking for these kinds of foods. And I think it's interesting that you don't differentiate in the way that you've written about this between gleaning and foraging, because I think that it speaks a lot to the blurring of many of these lines for those of us who are in urban environments and are very rarely going to get out of them, but can find all kinds of interesting plants that we might want to integrate into our lives, either because it's something that we want to propagate to keep it growing or because we want to go look for it as a food source. Yes, yes. And in the case of apples, it's both, actually. The thing you do with apples that you gather is going to depend on the character of apples. What's their flavor like? What's their texture like? Are the skins really thick and off-putting? And so many apples were planted initially as cider apples here in our country, and then we got away from that for multiple reasons. And now there's that whole renaissance of making cider and people wanting to resurrect these cider apples, almost like, truly, it's almost like bringing them back from not the dead, but they've almost disappeared. So there's this element of discovery that's twofold. It's not necessarily just finding a tree, but what type of apple is growing on that tree. And I'm, I love plants, but I'm not a scientist. I'm old enough now that I figured out you should just stick at the things you're good at, right? I'm good at cooking, but I'm never going to be a person who is figuring out what type of variety any given long lost apple is. That's for other people. And there are so many other of them. I'm just going to let them do that. And I'll appreciate the knowledge they share. I'm a person who just likes to go looking for mongrel fruit. And that's enough for me. And not knowing what it is that we're necessarily going to get is always an interesting exploration for me. For my family, once apple season hits, there's a local fruit seller at one of our farmer's markets who sells a bushel of drops for just a couple of dollars, but you never know what's going to be in there. And so our primary thing to do with it, because we never know the condition, is to turn that into applesauce. And it's amazing the different variety of flavors that we can get from that, depending on what particular apples wind up in there, even though we don't necessarily know what's in the bin. And very often the farmer doesn't either because he's just collected a whole bunch of stuff and thrown it in. So it's always a fascinating exploration to see what that food's going to be like when we get those apples home, peel them and cook them down. Oh, I love everything about what you just said. It demonstrates that you can have these ingredients that you're so familiar with. You think about all the red delicious apples that are at every continental breakfast buffet <laughs> or in so many school lunches that we've just grown up with, right? This sort of idea of what an apple is, this generic idea of an apple, like a plastic toy in a kid's grocery cart playset. And then there's that level of surprise 
when there are just thousands and thousands of varieties, or even if you distill it down to dozens, and then what happens when any given combination of them are made into applesauce? And fortunately, applesauce is something that it's really hard to screw up. It's easy to correct the flavor of. If it's too sweet, I'll add a little cider vinegar, lemon juice. And if it's not sweet enough, I'll add the sweetener of my choice in small increments. And yeah, that getting something a little different every time is the thrill of it. The idea that you go to the grocery store and you get a banana and it's a Cavendish banana and it's always it tastes exactly the same way. There's something comforting about that. But what I love about foraging is even from the same tree, you never know from season to season what exactly the flavor is going to be of any given fruit that you're putting in your mouth. So it's a reminder that like nature's the boss. We think we're the boss of nature, but ultimately nature is the boss. We can slowly destroy elements of nature because we have. That's just what happens with humans. I'm not going to say it's evil all the time. It's just we live on the planet and we change it. And we change our food. We modify our foods. And we think we always are the boss of the way our food's going to be. But meanwhile, plants just keep on doing their thing. They don't care what we think. So to be reminded of that by something you can eat, is it's so exciting. And as a chef, flavors that I haven't experienced before are what I crave. Those are my culinary adventures. And I think that's why so many people are really excited about forage ingredients right now. It's a way to experience something without having to leave their restaurant. I think about all the flavors that I've encountered with my family creating applesauce, and there's this one variety that we get that is always interesting to try to replicate moving forward that has almost a floral taste to it. And it reminds me very much of a spring bouquet of wildflowers. And it's just become like my favorite tasting applesauce, but it's not something that I can get anywhere else. I've never encountered it in anything commercially or otherwise. And I think the same thing about foraged foods to go back with like my son and I picking berries that we can get berries that are tart or that are even sour and then sometimes depending on which particular bramble it is they can be super sweet and the more that we attune ourselves to those kinds of flavors the more variety there is in what we're tasting which was really interesting for me having eaten so much commercial food for so long because my mother was a restaurateur always managing restaurants where for those periods during the 80s and 90s, it was about replicability. So it was wanting to serve something that the customer could expect every time because they had their favorite dishes and their preferences. And a lot of this new flavors and bitterness and things that I've only recently encountered in perhaps the last decade was just not part of that. And so moving into these more wild foods and forage foods really opened up my palate. And it's been interesting the more that I move away from what I can get in the grocery store and also limit some of the refined foods, especially some of the sugars and things, unless I'm using them for cooking, the less my palate is accustomed to that kind of sweetness that I can have on demand. And then when I am eating these wild foods, I can taste that sweetness so much more. And then going back from some of those, even though I take that berry and it tastes super sweet, to me in that moment, when I go back and get something that's been grown commercially, like a strawberry, it can all of a sudden seem so sweet, 
almost too sweet like a candy compared to what it is that I'm pulling from the land around me. There is definitely a readjustment of the palate that comes with foraging. And it's a good reminder of the ways that we ate before our food system became industrialized. And also just the role of sugar, which is an ingredient I love. (laughs) I should say there is no shortage of sugar in my house, although I try to be selective about when I use it. But sometimes it's by the pound if I'm making jam. But sugar is in so many foods. And it used to be an expensive ingredient that was very labor intensive. And slavery had a lot to do with that, with bringing the cost down and making sugar accessible. And those are things that I think about a lot when I'm foraging. I also think a lot about the work that it takes to make food happen. And I'm not even growing this food. I'm just going out and gathering it. So for people who do garden and grow food, you're used to the work that goes into it and also the amount that you get out of it. Sometimes there's so much and sometimes there's so little versus just going to the store and buying something. And then so often people just let it rot in the refrigerator because they have plans, grand schemes of making healthful foods and they just don't get around to it. And then it gets thrown away. So it's not just necessarily the waste of the ingredients, but the waste of the labor. So I think about that. I've come to revalue the foods that I buy and the work that goes into them on all of the different levels, because I understand that it can take a long time to just go out into the woods and come back with a handful of berries. And sometimes I'll do these little experiments with what I bring back and they'll just be terrible But I have to think of it in a way it's not necessarily wasting the food. It's my experience. The whole thing is a value-added experience because I've gone out into the woods. Like you, you never have, even if you go out foraging and you could come back with nothing, you always come back with an experience. So your time out in the woods or wherever, just walking around in the back alleys, which sounds dirty, but in, in my neighborhood, there's an alley between every two streets and they're pretty clean. I don't really forage. I just look for stuff. There's always a lot of pokeweed, which I don't forage for, but it's gorgeous. So I just go back there and look around, do some voyeurism on everybody's fruit trees in their backyards. But when I come back from those, it's the time that I've spent. It's the quality of the time that I've spent. So the food is like a bonus with any kind of foraging. For me, those experiences have always been a part of that practice. Once I got over the initial, I need to know what this thing is before I can eat it, of like scientific discovery of pulling out my dichotomous key, pulling out my field manuals and everything else to be sure that I could eat it. After I got comfortable with knowing what it was that I was looking for, it turned more into being able to go out and see what I could find. And to spend time with the people who I was with, I very rarely go hiking or foraging alone. And so it's been with my children or some friends or things like that. And even though we sit and eat all of these things while we're out there, it's about that moment together. As with my story that I shared earlier about my son, the content of that story is really about that time that we shared together around the berries. 
not just about the berries by the side going into this very technical description, but about that shared experience with someone who matters to me. And I think about the way that we can have more of those kinds of moments if we have an interest in foraging or wild foods by sharing what it is we're doing with others and by then inviting people to our table to try these things. And one of the things that I really like about your book is that you're not just sharing fruits that people can forage for and how to find them and identify them, but you're also sharing recipes so that people can make a meal out of them. And I think that's so important and also meaningful for people who are foraging because many of the field guides about these types of foods for so many years were really just about identifying them more like a survival food. Then you have people like Sam Thayer, who is really digging into these ideas of what we can find around us as wild foods and sharing how to cook them and some of the ways that he might enjoy them. But they don't get into the depth that you and some of your other Chelsea Green authors, such as Pascal Baldar, have explored in how do you take these ingredients and turn them into cuisine, something that you can serve from your table and really share with others. And I'm really glad to see what you've done within your book to develop recipes then that people can try and not be turned off by finding something and not knowing what to do with it. And I was wondering, what did you get into in order to develop the recipes that you share with us in your book? Were they, again, that kind of thing where it was a lot of trial and error? Or were you adapting recipes that you already knew from your experiences as a chef? Both. And that was the whole impetus for the book was there were, as I became more interested in pawpaws, it was just natural that there were other foraged fruits that I was curious about. And sometimes I would bring them home and think, what the heck do I do with this stuff now? And then there's a whole exciting phase of research after that as a library person, as well as a chef. That's something that appeals to me a lot. But I did get frustrated that there wasn't a resource to just look at that would tell me how to cook barberries, for instance. So I thought, okay, a, a handy guide for people with a certain amount of culinary literacy, but who are not chefs or they just want useful information. That's how the, the idea for the book came about. And a lot of the strategies that I have in there, whether they're for recipes or just for ideas, set people on a track of thinking about quantity, number one, number two, keeping quality, and number three, I would say the integrity of the ingredient itself. There's some things that are just great on their own, and if they keep for a while, then why should you do anything with them than just eat them? And there are other things that are you're going to need help with. I'm thinking about hackberries. They're interesting. They're hard to use in a culinary context. Hackberry milk, which is a liquid that you need a high-powered blender to make and isn't quite like milk. It's not almond milk or anything, for instance. That's like the default thing to make with hackberries. But you can also just pull one from the tree and chew the outer membrane off. They have a very large pit and a very small amount of flesh. And they're a little bit like a cross between a raisin and a date in flavor. I want people to know that it's okay to just enjoy that part of the hackberry and spit out the pit and... Maybe you can do that three times a year, and that's all you need to do. It's okay to only do that. But if you want to gather a gallon of hackberries, this is what you can do with that. Actually, they keep for a long time. So fortunately, you could just hang on to them <laughs> for a while. So 
those were some of the strategies I was thinking about. And definitely Pascal Baldur's approach is something I'm so in awe of. I just love how he kind of rethinks things. He comes at stuff with such a fresh perspective. And I think what I do is a lot more attuned to what a typical home cook would do. So while other people do wild crafting, I just make stuff with stuff I find. I would say it's an aesthetic difference. There's not one thing that's more noble than the other, but I would say my food is a lot more entry level. How about that? Which is fine. That's what I wanted to do that with. So I don't need people to go out with little canvas bag and gather chia seeds all day long in the desert. Although that would be awesome if I could do that. I would love to do that. But I don't think that's realistic for most people's needs. So if you're just bringing home a box of Meyer lemons from your neighbor's yard, then what are some things you can do with a box of lemons that is not making marmalade? That's how I approached it. What fits into the most common fruit nerd's life? That intersection between what we're likely to encounter and then the skills that most home cooks or hobby chefs would have. Yes, exactly. The intersection of that. And professionally, I've always thought of myself as a person who has one foot in the professional kitchen and one foot in the home kitchen. So I try to think of myself as a translator between those two worlds because I can work in a professional kitchen, but I would say my heart is more in the home kitchen. And so many books are more chef centric, taking chef ideas and making them, making a home cook's life fit to the chef ideas. But in a restaurant kitchen, there's somebody washing your dishes and you have somebody chopping your stuff for you. And I think there's a big gap between that and what goes on in a home kitchen where you're doing things yourself. You have to wash every pot you make dirty. Your knife probably isn't as sharp as everybody else's knives. And I want those people to feel successful and have as few barriers to wonderful experience as possible. And I like that approach because even though I spent all those years in restaurant kitchens with my mother and grew up with a family that cooked, I've always been someone who very much follows a recipe. So having something to pull from really does open up this world of foraged foods and makes it a lot more approachable. And here I have the opportunity through what you've written to try these different ingredients with things that I would normally eat. And it makes it easier as a parent to go out with my children and say, oh, we're going to get this and we can go home and make jam with it or a syrup for on top of ice cream. You know what? You had said something earlier about the shared experience of foraging with people, with friends and with family. And it did remind me of something that I'd love to bring up. One is that it is, of course, important to ID things before you eat them. And in some cases, before you, you touch them, you don't want to get a rash from a plant or anything. But if you know someone, and this is advice I have to tell myself, because I do go out by myself a lot. It just fits into my schedule better. But I love people, and I love learning things. And I think so many of us know a person who is like this magic person. And when you go out with them, they see everything, and they know something about everything you don't know about. It's like they're opening all of these wonderful doors. I have a friend who's a naturalist, and she is a bird watching expert. And oh my gosh, just everything. I went on a hike with her once, and she found a rabbit's hindquarters under a rock and was noticing how fresh they were and had a theory about an animal possibly 
a coyote having stowed them under the rock at some point and very recently to come back and get later. Every corner we turned, there was another thing that she was pointing out to us. And it's just so exciting. I also have some friends who love to forage for mushrooms. And so going out with them, I learn mushroom things. So I would recommend to all of you, if you have a person like that in your life, figure out how you can go out into the woods or anywhere with them. And they will open these magic doors and remember where those are in your mind, right? And go back through those later on, on your own. And maybe you can be that person for someone else at some point. So much of this is just about sharing knowledge and sharing enthusiasm, too. And if you don't have somebody like that in your life, I'm sure that if you look around, you'll probably find someone who's offering a foraging course or a rewilding class that does nature immersion that will teach you forageable foods. And it's worth looking for something like that. If this is your first time doing something like this or encountering wild foods, go ahead and take a couple of classes, get a little bit of training, get yourself some books and dig and dive in. Yes, very much. I would say that doing something with an actual person in front of you, a class, whatever it is, just have a person physically with you. I think it really makes so much of a difference. And then there's all this follow-up work you can do. I always say that the people, the more foraging guides you have, that shows that you're just, you actually know more. You just want to keep on acquiring more and more of them, the more you get into this stuff. And Paper guides are wonderful. I'm a, definitely a book person. I have noticed that sometimes there are foraging videos that are occasionally incorrect. And sometimes things are just incorrect, right? It's not necessarily because somebody's evil or ignorant. They just might be somewhat misinformed. But I would say approach anything that you see on the internet and sometimes even in books. You know, always have a little grain of skepticism in there because sometimes there'll be some new facts that come along and bring stuff to light. But that said, I have found that Instagram, of all places, is a wonderful resource for connecting with other people who like to do this stuff, where you can start these little dialogues. Foraging is a very visual thing, and people will just share pictures of, oh, here's a pawpaw blossom. Those will start happening pretty soon. Right now, it's early April as we're talking. <laughs> and they're into the same things you are, so if you can't go out with your magic people all the time. You can still network with people through social media. And so often my feelings about social media are negative, but when there's, when I can use them for things like that, that lift my life up, that's what I try to just stick to that with them. So I would say that social media can be a useful way to network knowledge and foragers and for them to have dialogues. If you don't have someone in your life, like my husband will listen to me about, you know, what I, I fell down yesterday, actually. I was out in the woods checking up on all the plants I love, and it was really muddy, and I fell down. So he noticed I had mud on my pants, but he wasn't very interested in me talking about the actual plants themselves. So I have to outsource that sometimes. And I think about all the technology we have these days that very often when I'm out hunting, I have better cell phone reception when I'm in the middle of nowhere than I do at my own home. And you just reminded me there was a time I was out on a hike and I saw something that I thought was autumn olive, but it was something that I'd never harvested before. So there I am with a friend of mine and I had good cell coverage. I pulled down a video about identifying autumn olive and it walked me through everything. And I was like, okay, we've watched that. It matches all these characteristics. Let's double check this. And so then I was able to pull up. Then somebody had written about autumn olive, a different author on a different page. I was able to cross compare the things that they shared in common and get an ID fairly 
quickly and safely while we were in the field just because I happened to carry that little pocket computer that keeps me connected to the world. And it was indeed autumn olive? It was, and they were perfectly ripe and in season, and we just stood there and started eating. Those guys can be tricky because sometimes they look beautiful and ripe, and they're just not quite there yet. I love it when things line up that way, that you're in the right place at the right time by the right fruit. And in that case, you had your pocket computer. And yeah, you can just dig in. Also, I love that autumn olive is called that. It doesn't, they don't even look like olives. I just, it's such a misleading name. I think I've heard autumn berry. They're trying to rebrand them as that. Good luck. (laughs) Before we draw the conversation to a close, do you have any final thoughts for the listeners? I do. I think people get so hung up, and I do too, on this idea of a bucket list or the places you have to go for your life to be complete. In our world, to even have a choice is a privilege. To even be able to just walk down the sidewalk is amazing. To have a sidewalk, period. To be able to get yourself to a wild space is amazing. So I would say don't discount the transformative power of going to the spaces that you think of as unremarkable and see them through new eyes. Just look at them afresh and see what they have to tell you. It might change the way you look at everything around you. So get outside and look at what's going on and walk and look and notice. And those three things... Just being able to do that is is such a gift. Use it. Thank you for that, Sarah, and for joining me today for this conversation. Oh, my goodness. Scott, you are welcome. This has been so delightful, and I really appreciate the opportunity to come and talk with you, and I've enjoyed this conversation so much. And that was Sarah Beer, author of The Fruit Forager's Companion. You can find her at sausagetarian.com and her book at chelseagreen.com. I also recommend following her on Instagram. She posts some really great pictures about food and what she's finding. Just as with her website, she is Sausagetarian. While you're there, also be sure to follow the show at Permaculture Podcast to see more of what's going on behind the scenes. You'll find links to those and more in the resources section of the show notes. Talking with Sarah, as you hear from the stories I shared today, reminds me of all the different connections that I have with food from particular flavors like the applesauce, crafted through culinary means, to those moments that matter with my children, standing by the trailside with my son picking berries, or sitting in the grass with my daughter munching on violets. Or now, in this moment, thinking back to when I was a child and would sit at the edge of my parents' garden and pick strawberries. Food, whether foraged and gleaned from the fields or purchased from farm or market, give us time with ourselves and others. It nourishes our body, our spirit, and our community. Finding something to eat, whether simply untended or truly wild, weaves those threads with the wider world as we take in the soil and season with what we gather. Until the next time, spend each day creating a better world by taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.